want to thank all of those who uh, gave up a lot of time this week to help with Vacation Bible School. We'll talk about that more in the morning service, but um, appreciate that. I think there was some good fruit from what we did, and, and hopefully more fruit to come. Let me invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You may be wondering why we would talk about what we believe. I mean, why go through the statement of faith? It seems a little bit tedious. I mean, if you're just looking at that, it um, might seem a little technical. I mean, do people really use these things anymore? Um, aren't they a little bit out of date? Aren't these a little bit uh, just designed for theologians to think through and kind of not really important for us? But I want us to see this morning that that there is nothing more important about a church than what it believes. And um, so we're going to uh, go through our statement of faith and make sure that we affirm these things and then um, it will help us better understand where we came from and what we are moving toward. All right, let me pray first and then we'll look at this this verse here. Lord, thank You for uh, Your grace. Thank You for a good week and for the uh, the good weather and... Um, thankful for uh, the opportunity to meet with some parents and to be able to give the gospel. Thankful for these young kids who came and some who didn't know Christ, some who did. And, and we just pray that you would just provide fruit that would be lasting and that would bring about glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy 2.15 reads, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Paul here is talking to Pastor Timothy, and um, he's saying that it is important what you believe. Um, The single most important thing about a church is what it believes. And so, some Christians are opposed to statements of faith. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but people say, you know, I don't really believe in and those kinds of things. I don't believe in summarizing the Scripture. I just believe in the Scripture uh, by itself. And yet, if you think about it, Paul even summarized the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He said, you know, um, I, I gave unto you that which you first believed, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again. Then he goes on to talk about His ascension, and or actually being visible to many people, and then His ascension. And so he, he basically summarizes the gospel in one, one small way. And so it's not wrong to make a summary of what the Scriptures teach. Um, you know, we recognize that God's revelation cannot be reduced to some little pithy formulas that we can just take around and say, well, we know everything about what God has to say in these few little formulas or in our statement of faith. But we also recognize that that the truth of Scripture can be summarized. And really, when someone says, I don't believe anything but the Bible, um, well, what is it that you believe about the Bible? Because I, I know people who believe the Bible, but they don't believe the same way that I believe about the Bible, right? I'm sure you know people like that. about. So that's why statements of faith are helpful, and that's why our statement of faith is important. So what we want to do in the next several minutes is to consider what we believe as a church. Okay, so before we begin, a few general words about the statement of faith. First, they are biblical. Okay, they are biblical. That is, we see them in Scripture. They're not 
something that we just derive out of our air, out of the air, or as my theology professor used to say, we just suck it out of our thumb. You know, this is just some theology that we just suck out of our thumb, and here we go. Here's something brand new. Uh, no, this is from the Bible. That's why we say they're biblical statements. Secondly, we believe that they're historical statements that they have been widely used and understood. Many of them have been believed since the first century. That is, that that churches all the way back to the first century would be united in these same things that we believe today. Not all of them, and I'll show you about that in just a second. And then third, I would say that these statements of faith are mere statements. They're not meant to be exhaustive statements of doctrine. So if you want to know everything that there is about God the Father, you're not going to go to our statement of faith. Okay? They are they're just mere statements. They're summaries of the essential elements of the Christian faith. So while I hope that you believe this statement of faith and you affirm this statement of faith, I hope this is not all that you believe, right? I hope that you believe much more than what's in here. But these are these are some of the basics. So we're going to uh, proceed by reading through each section of the statement of, of faith and then uh, take questions. And what I want you to notice is on the back of your handout is an overview of all 19 statements. And I realize that I, that last column looks terrible. What a Man, you know, you got this really nice handout in, in uh, black and white, but the last column says congregation all. So that's, that's terrible on my part. All right. But... But don't don't look at that, okay? Look at look at the rest of this. What you want to notice is that these are our 19 statements of faith, and that on most of them, okay, about about 10 10 or 11 of them, are historically Christian. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that these would not be have been opposed by historical Christians. And when I say Christians, I mean it in the broadest terms, okay? Not people who are going to make it to heaven, but people who call themselves Christians including Catholics, okay, that back to the first century, they would believe the same thing that we believe. Now, today it's changed because you've had liberalism that's, that's come in and, and they don't believe the same thing about the Bible that they once did. But if you go back to first century, uh, the, the first century churches that were Orthodox Christians, this is what you're going to find, that they believe what we believe on the true God, the Holy Spirit, creation. Now, here's what sets us apart as Protestants. See that next column? It is what we believe about the Scriptures, right? That we believe that the, the Bible is the authority. And then justification, obviously. Um, you know, if you think about the history with Martin Luther and things, he was coming out of Catholicism and recognizing that they didn't have the genuine um, means of salvation. The new birth, sanctification, and then uh, down to the bottom, finances. How, how the church is financed. Righteous and the wickedest wicked in the perseverance of the saints. And then what sets us apart, as, as we talked about last week, as Baptists, is the next column, is how we view the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, it's not that other people don't believe in baptism and the Lord's Supper, but they just practice it a different way. And so what sets us apart as Baptists is that. And then our congregational church, uh, as I've mentioned before. All right, so let's go through the statement now. And if, as we go through, I'll try to just point out uh, where these how these things fit into the history of orthodox um, doctrines. All right. So, statement of faith. To set forth in order a declaration of those, those things which are surely believed among us that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Luke 1, 1-4. 1 
Okay, so here's kind of the goal of the statement of faith. By the way, I I was going through some old documents this week, and I came across this. This is actually a copy of our church constitution from the late 50s. And uh, it it actually contains the exact same words that you see in here uh, on the statement of faith. And just a nice little printed thing. has a little bit of history up until that point. But I thought that was kind of neat. Um, it also contains the church covenant and the uh, the bylaws as well. All right, so the Scripture. We believe that the Holy Bible, the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, was written by men, divinely inspired, and that it is a treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author and is the Word of God and does not contain the Word of God. It has salvation for its aim, that it has truth without any mixture or error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, that it shall remain, therefore, to the end, the true center of all Christian union, that is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. So this is something that is Protestant. Again, the Catholics would not believe historically that the Scriptures are the sole means of authority. Right? It was the, the Bible plus who? The Pope. Okay, the papal instructions. And now over time it's been not just the Pope, but all the previous Popes and all their all the things so they can speak ex cathedra um, outside of the the scriptures. Uh, one thing I just want to point out there that second, uh, I guess it would be the fourth line down, that it has God for its author and is the Word of God, does not contain the Word of God. Um, back in the 1930s when this statement of faith was written, one of the big challenges to um, fundamental Christianity was what was called neo-orthodoxy. Anybody have any idea what neo-orthodoxy was or is? Okay, good, because I can just make something up. All right. Karl Barth. Karl Barth, you heard that name before? Karl Barth was a Swiss, Swiss theologian back during that time. And he taught that God was the holy other, that he was really distant from his creation, that, that he didn't really come down and, and try to reveal himself to us. So what we have in the Scripture are lots of words about God, but it's actually not words from God. And so what our what the writers of our um, statement of faith were doing, actually they probably borrowed from other statements of faith, but but the, the original members of our church were saying, listen, we believe that this actually is God's Word. It's not just something that just kind of God, God's not concerned with us, that He's kind of really removed from us, but He really is trying to reveal Himself to us. So that's what they're trying to get at there with that statement. All right, any questions on that first section? All right, these next six sections are historically Christian. So these we would agree with everybody in orthodoxy back to the first century. Okay, um, The true God. We believe that there is only one living and true God, an infinite, intelligent spirit whose name is Jehovah, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. Okay, there's an error. That He is inexpressibly glorious in holiness, that He is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. That in in the unity of the Godhead, that there are three persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the three are equal in every divine perfection; that they ex- execute distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Okay, so we believe in the true God. Any questions on that? All right, just stop me. I'll I'll uh, try to keep going so we can get through this. All right. Next, the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine person equal with God the Father and God the Son and of the same nature, that He was active in the creation 
that in his relationship to the unbelieving world, he restrains the evil one until God's great purpose is fulfilled, that he convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that he bears witness to the truth of the gospel in preaching and testimony, that he is the agent of the new birth, that he seals, endues, guides, teaches, witnesses, sanctifies, and helps the believer in accordance with the Scripture. Alright, so another historically Christian doctrine. And then the creation. We believe in the Genesis account of creation and that it is to be accepted literally and not allegorically or figuratively uh, that man was created directly in God's own image and after his likeness, that man's creation was not a matter of evolution or by evolutionary changes of species or development through interminable periods of time from lower to higher forms, that all animal and vegetable life was created directly and that God's established law was and is that they should bring forth after their kind. Now again, in the early uh, 20s and 30s and into the 1930s, you have uh, theological liberalism starting to creep in. And what that means is, not, not don't think like political liberalism, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about theological liberalism where these historically Christian doctrines, things that would not have ever been denied uh, by someone who is in in orthodoxy, we're now starting to be questioned. They're starting to question everything about creation, about the true God, and so on. You'll see um, several of these now are all in question among liberals, um, theological liberals, but we still hold to them because we believe they're from the Bible. All right, next, the fall of man. We believe that man was created in holiness and innocence in the image of God under the law of his Maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and blessed state in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners. Man is not a sinner by constraint, but by choice. Man is therefore by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin. Man is therefore without defense or excuse. All right. Next is the virgin birth, another historically Christian doctrine. We believe that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Holy Ghost in a miraculous manner, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that His birth was as no other man has ever been born or ever can be born, and that He is the Son of God and God the Son. This doctrine is very important, first, because it is required for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, second, because it is absolutely necessary to His atoning death. John wrote his epistles to prove that Jesus came in the flesh. He had to be truly man to be the seed of the woman and to take the kinsman part. He had to be truly man to be the seed of Abraham to inherit the promises. He had to be truly man to be the son of David to claim the throne of Israel. When Ahaz refused to sign, to ask for a sign, God gave one for all time greater than heaven or earth uh, could afford. That's referring to Isaiah chapter 7 there where that prophecy of, and a virgin will be born. Um, uh, I'm sorry, from, from a virgin, a son will be born. Okay, so that's where the, the prophecy is. That's why they um, that, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the virgin birth is necessary because, um, you know, as, as I've talked about in the Gospel of Luke, I think as we looked at it there, if Jesus just came from heaven, uh, people might say, well, well what, what connection does he have with us, right? And, in fact, since Jesus is God, God cannot die. And so he has to be human in order to die. And so Jesus had to take on flesh. He had to take on human flesh. And um, 
the fact that he was born of one one parent, just the mother, is critical to to uh, fulfilling the Old Testament and to providing atoning death. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's from Isaiah 7. That's the prophecy. So if we turn there quickly, Isaiah 7. Yeah. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. So I tried to quote it earlier, but did a terrible job. So there it is. All right. Good. Next, the way of salvation. Obviously, um, um, this this can be disputed by lots of different people, but we believe that the salvation of the sinner is holy grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon Him our nature, yet without sin, honored the divine law by His personal obedience, and by His death made a full and vicarious atonement for our sins. That His atonement consisted not in setting us an example by His death as a martyr, but was the voluntary substitution of Himself in the sinner's place. The just dying for the unjust, Christ the Lord, bearing our sins in His own body on the tree, that having risen from the dead, He is now enthroned in heaven and united and uniting in His every way, qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. So on the back of your handout, I actually have that in the wrong column. It should be Protestant, um, not historically Christian. The reason we know that is because Catholics didn't believe that salvation was holy of grace, even historically. Obviously, they don't now. And they didn't believe that His death, death was full and vicarious, that is, full and substitutionary, that you needed to add something to it. And that's why they are constantly... Every mass, they are re what? They're re-sacrificing Jesus. That's why he's still on the cross for them, right? So they they need to add something to it, and um, so we obviously believe that Jesus fully satisfied all that we needed in order to be made right with God. Sandra, pardon me. Um, why would you say that? Yeah, they. Oh no, they. If you look back onto um, the Holy Spirit, that he. If you look back in the Holy Spirit, about six, seven lines down, he is the agent of the new birth. So what they're trying to do is just try to categorize things. They can't say everything that they absolutely need to say. Again, we should believe what's in here, but we should we should believe more than what's in here. Okay, they they can't say everything because they're summaries. So we, we should understand that, yes, the Holy Spirit is a part because we already saw that in the previous previous one. All right. Next, justification. Again, Protestant doctrine sets us apart as Protestants, um, those who have protested against uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church and, along with the Reformers. We believe that the great gospel blessing which Jesus Christ secures to such as believe in Him is justification. That justification includes the pardon of sin, the promise of eternal life on principles of righteousness, that it is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood, by virtue of which faith His perfect righteousness is imputed to us, or in other words, accredited to our account of God, that it brings us into every other blessing needful for time and eternity. 
one of the one of the things I love about our statement of faith is that you you can hear the words of Scripture. Do you notice any in this section? Which ones? Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Where does that come from? Titus 3, 5, and 6. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and so on. So, same thing in the last one. Um, you know, that He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. That's from 1 Peter 2.24. So, a lot of these references below are, are really, they're, they're taking sections of Scripture and they're incorporating them into the summaries. And that, that uh, I, I think that's very helpful. The new birth. Next, another Protestant um, doctrine. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be born again. That the new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus. That it is instantaneous and not a process. It doesn't happen over time. That in the new birth, the dead in trespasses and in sins is made a partaker of the divine nature and receives eternal life, the free gift of God. That this new creation is brought about in a manner beyond our comprehension, not by culture, not by character, not by the will of man, but wholly and solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel that as proper evidence appears in the holy fruit of repentance, faith, and newness of life. Okay? So, if you notice, we have three three statements of faith just on salvation. That's just on the initial part of salvation. You think, uh, you think the, the original members of our church were concerned about getting that part right? You know? And, and many of the churches do this, by the way. Um, and um, so I, I think that's important because we want to know who we are as a congregation. That we're not just, oh, it's okay, you can come however you are, and if you're not saved, you know, or if you're saved, you, however, whichever way you want, it's okay. Um, no, they want to make it very clear, and, uh, and we ought to hold to these as well. All right, sanctification, another thing that sets us apart as Protestant is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of His holiness, that it is a progressive work. Do you notice the last one said it's not a process. It's instantaneous. That was justification or the new birth. Now we're saying sanctification is a progress. It is a process, a progressive work. That it is begun in regeneration and that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, and the continual use of the appointed means, especially... The Word of God, prayer, self-examination, self-denial, and watchfulness. Okay, so sanctification. Someone define that for me. How would you define sanctification? Okay. Yeah, so yeah, so it's a process that happens after we come to salvation. It's not something that unbelievers have happened to them. They, they're not sanctifi- sanctified. Believers, after they're saved, then they go through this process of what theologians call progressive sanctification. It's a process where we're continually being cleansed and changed and and refined. It's the cocoon process. Um, In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are changed into the image of Christ as we look into the mirror of God's Word. That word changed comes from the word that we have uh, metamorphosis. So it's that process where right now we're kind of in the cocoon. One day we're going to be able to get out and spread our wings, but that's not going to come to the next life. Because right now God's going through this process, which 
in many cases, it's kind of ugly, right? I mean, the cocoon process is kind of ugly and difficult, and but one day, you know, God's going to make us to be beautiful, and it's it's going to make sense. That'll be the process of glorification. Um, so sanctification. All right. Okay, we're all on board still. Good. The church. Hey, this sets us apart as congregational. Uh, some of these things would be agreed by, by other Orthodox uh, groups of, of of people, but but this is sets us apart as congregational. We believe that a New Testament church is a congregation of baptized believers. Okay, again, that's remember what, the most fundamental distinction or the the fundamental essence at the essence of being a Baptist is the fact that we are made up of baptized believers. That's what we have right here in our statement of faith. Associated by the covenant of faith and fellowship in the gospel, observing the ordinance of Christ, governed by His laws, exercising the gifts as set out in the Word of God, that its officers of ordination are pastors or elders and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are clearly defined in the Scriptures. We believe that the true mission of the church is found in the Great Commission. Where would that be? Matthew 28. Good. To make disciples, to baptize disciples, to build them up in the most holy faith. That comes from Jude. That's a direct quotation. And to teach them to observe all things that have been commanded them. That's back to Matthew 28. Next paragraph. We hold that it is right. It is the right of the local church to self-government. Okay, here's the congregational part. Free from the interference of any hierarchy of individuals or organizations. Okay, what what kinds were we talking about last week? What other churches have hierarchies? Presbyterian? What's that? Methodist, Episcopalian, Catholic. Okay, they have the hierarchy. You have to go outside of the church to find out um, what you believe and how you should practice. We're saying we don't have that. We believe that the Scriptures are authority and that the congregation is the one who is the, the final, uh, makes the final choices there. And it is scriptural for local churches to cooperate together in contending for the faith and for the furtherance of the gospel, that every church is the sole and only judge of the measure of its cooperation, and on all matters of membership, policy, polity, government, discipline, benevolence, the majority vote is the will of the local church in all things. Okay, so don't take that to mean, wow, we really have to have a spiritual group of people. Again, I think we do, but but the point of that is is that these are issues of that are not clearly stated in the scriptures, right? Does the, do the scriptures tell us how much money to send to Mike Jewell, right? It doesn't tell us the amount of money. Does it doesn't even tell us to send money to Mike Jewell, right? It says to send him to missionary. So we have to make decisions that are specific that will actually uh, be in obedience to the more general command, right? Um, I think it's Third John that talks about you need to send them out for the sake of the name. So we have a responsibility to give to missionaries, but the Bible doesn't tell us which one. So that is up to the congregation to decide. And we've decided. We've chosen you know, these nine missionaries that we're going to support, and we make choices every year as far as how much money it's going to be. So don't think, you know, wow, we must... We have to be really close to God, or, or um, you know, yes, I mean the Spirit works in that way, but, but don't think that um, other churches are better than us because they use some other means. They, every church has to make decisions. Some use the hierarchy, 
type model, we're saying that the scripture, scriptural model is the congregation makes those choices. All right, baptism in the Lord's Supper is a uh, doctrine that sets us, sets us apart as, baptism, uh, as Baptists. That is the way that we practice these things. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the authority of the local church to show forth in a beautiful and solemn emblem or a sign, symbol of our faith in the crucified, buried, risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to newness of life. That it is a prerequisite to church relationship and a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper in which the members of the church by the sacred use of the bread and cup are to commemorate the dying love of Christ preceded always by a solemn self-examination. And then it actually gets into a little bit of how often we should do it. The Lord's Supper will be celebrated once a month at the close of the morning service or as often as the pastor shall decide. Okay, so one one thing that's been a question even this past summer, I had a, a lady come up to me and say, why why do you require that, that, that um, for a person to take the Lord's Supper that they have to be a saved and baptized and a member of the church. Why do you require that? You know what I told her? This is a lady that's not a member of our church. I said, it's in our statement of faith. This is back from 1939. This is how we always have believed. Now, maybe some pastors, uh, you know, kind of allowed it to, to go a different way, but I'm saying this is something that is historically what Ambassador Baptist Church believes. And that's why I, I try to make it clear at the beginning of each of our Lord's Suppers that you are welcome to join us if you are a Christian and if you are baptized and a member of a church like ours. And um, so obviously not all people, not all Christians like that, that the way that we handle that. We believe that that's the most biblical model. Um, there are other churches that practice what is called open communion. We practice close communion. Okay, open communion means if you if you're a Christian, then you can take the Lord's Supper. The the big problem with that is there's there's nowhere in Scripture that shows, uh, particularly from the time of Acts on, where there's a person who is saved but not a part of a church. Right, every Christian in the New Testament from the establishment of the church is saved and then he becomes a part of the church, of a local church. And so there needs to be a connection there. And the way that we, um, you know, the the way that we bring someone into membership, as we saw earlier, under the the category of the church, is through baptism. So that's why they need to be baptized and they need to be a member of our church in order to take the Lord's Supper. All right, any questions on that or anything else we've seen so so far? All right, next, the Lord's Day. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day and is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by abstaining from all needless labor and recreation and by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by a preparation for that rest that remaineth for the people of God. They get that phrase, the Lord's Day, I think it's from Revelation 1, where John says that I was in the presence of the Lord. I was... I was speaking to him on the Lord's Day or something. And I think Christians historically have just taken that to mean that that's talking about Sunday, which is the new day of worship. Now, no longer is it on Saturday. It's it's on Sunday because Christ raised from the dead on Sunday.
Sunday. And so that's where that phrase comes from. All right. Believers walk. We believe that since the citizenship of the child of God is in heaven, that henceforth he is to walk separately from this present evil world, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, abstaining from every appearance of evil so as not to conform to its character or conduct, whether it be in amusements or habits which defile both mind and body. Okay, so we, we take this very seriously. And if we were to look at our covenant, which um, I actually have in this handout, I don't think we're going to have time to get to it, but um, yeah, we're not going to have time. But our covenant actually states that same thing, that we need to have an orderly walk as a Christian. It's not enough to just name the name of Christ or to say, hey, I've been baptized. But our walk is important. That's why they take, took a whole section just to talk about that. All right? The resurrection and return of Christ, something that would have been historically Christian doctrine we believe in, and accept the sacred scriptures at their face value on these subjects. On the resurrection, we believe that Christ rose bodily from the grave the third day, according to the scriptures, and he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, that he alone is our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Those phrases right there are just drawn directly from scripture. Uh, you hear Hebrews there. You hear 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, next next paragraph, we believe that this, na- this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Again, another, another quotation. I think that's from Luke's Gospel. And then we believe in the blessed hope, the personal, visible, premillennial, pre-tribulational, and imminent coming of our Lord and Savior. What, what do our founding members mean when they say premillennial and pre-tribulation coming of our Lord. What do they mean by that? Okay, before the millennial kingdom and before the tribulation. Okay, so they're talking about everybody else. I think, I mean, except for, well, I think everybody believes in in some kind of a rapture. Um, correct me if I'm wrong in that. All millennials believe in a rapture? Or do they... They just—I don't think they do, do they? Okay. 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 So the question is the timing of it. What I was getting at was, uh, we believe that Christ comes before the tribulation, based in Revelation 3:10. Let me see if he's got that one down. He doesn't—they uh, don't have that one. But Revelation 3:10 says that we will be saved from the hour of testing. So before the tribulation, we're going to be raptured. In, in heaven with God, with Christ, uh, awaiting Christ coming back to the earth. Some people believe that Jesus will come during the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into it. Other people believe this would be post-millennials or, or post-tribulation, um, but they, they believe that He comes right before the kingdom. And then you have some people that believe that, that Christ actually comes yeah, at the end of the kingdom, um, at the end of the millennial kingdom. And there's all sorts of things that, that go into that because people's idea of the millennium is, is different. But what we're saying is that our church historically has believed and still does in a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational rapture. It doesn't mean that everybody that doesn't believe that way are unbelievers. That's not what we're saying. But we think it is clear from the Scriptures that that's when Christ will come. Missions. We believe that the command to give the gospel to the whole world is clear and unmistakable and that this commission was given to the church. No distinction is made in the Scriptures between home and foreign missions. 
as we have them today. So it is our duty to be a missionary church and have a part in sending the gospel throughout the entire world. Anyone know what our church's name was before it was Ambassador Baptist Church? Yeah, it was Oak Missionary Baptist Church. Okay, so it was a missionary Baptist church, and that's what you you just you just hear those words right in that statement. That we don't believe that that we can just oh yeah, all the mission work needs to go over there, overseas. We don't have to do anything here. They they believe strongly, and and I think we still do that that we ought to be doing the work of missions here. That is the the spread of the gospel needs to be going out here. Now you could quibble about the the name of that. You say well. Some people define missions as something that you have to cross a culture in order to to reach people, and I would agree with that statement. So you could actually say what what we're doing here is not really missions, it's evangelism, but again, those are just semantics. The point is we need to be spreading the gospel. Finances, we believe the method of giving to the work of our Lord is very clearly set out in the Scriptures. We believe that scriptural giving is one of the fundamentals of the faith, that God's work should be carried on by the tithes and offerings of God's people and no other methods should be used to solicit money. That's why you don't have, you don't see us, you know, throwing car washes so that people will we can earn some more money for a trip. We don't uh ask people to send out requests in order to uh earn money for a mission trip or something like that. Um if they did that individually, you know, that that would be fine, but but we don't as a church, we don't solicit money other than um the way that the Bible recommends, which is through just giving of our offerings. The righteous and the wicked, we believe that there's a radical difference between the eternal destiny of the righteous and the wicked. At the moment a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior and in true repentance calls upon His name, that that person is eternally saved. While the person who continues in sin is finally in sin and finally rejects the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior is eternally lost. Okay? There's a doctrine that we would say is uh, sets us apart as Protestants. Perseverance of the saints. We believe that such only are real believers that endure until the end. So the only true believers are those who endure to the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. Okay, people who just name the name of Christ. We would call them nominal Christians that a special providence watches over their welfare and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. All right? So there's our statement of faith. Any questions on any of that? All right. When you started here at the church, and if it wasn't then, it was since then, you've had uh, an opportunity to go through this Um and I think that it's important for us not to just put this away in a filing cabinet and say, well, that's nice. That's how we were founded and everything. But it is something that we still affirm today. And that these principles that we're affirming are principles that are drawn from Scripture and actually will help to unify us and help us draw the lines of distinction between who should be in and who should be out. So when we have a person who comes in and says, well, I believe that the only way that a person can be saved is through the King James Bible or something like that. We go back to our statement of faith and we say, you know, we don't see anything like that. Or I believe that a person should be allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Well, guess what? You don't have to be a member of our church. You know, we're happy to turn people away because we want to be unified around these principles that define us, that set us apart as a, an individual church. And... um 
you know, people don't like that, then we ask them just not to join from the very beginning. And that may sound a little bit harsh, but um, I can tell you that there are all sorts of um, conflicts that arise from ignoring these things. No, this uh, doesn't really matter what we believe. Come on in. We'll take anybody. Um, no, that, that actually will bring about great disunity because at some point, you know, in the beginning, people are all nice and, hey, we're, we're buddies and we agree on everything. But then over time, what happens is those doctrines start to rise to the surface and they come up and then we have to say something about it. And if we don't have anywhere to turn, we don't say, well, you know, I believe this, you believe this, you know. Who's, who's going to be the final authority? And, and thankfully, we have some solid believers from the very beginning who took some time to um, write these things down and the things that were of critical importance for their church and for our church now. And um, I think we ought to be concerned about them, and I think we ought to understand them and think about them and, and uh, regularly affirm them. All right? Well, let's take some time to go through the covenant, see if we can get through that. Um, I wasn't sure that we were going to have time, but statement of purpose. Why do we exist as a church? It is our purpose to glorify God through the winning of souls, the enlisting, educating, edifying, and uplifting of those souls and others that come into our midst and the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Okay, and here's our covenant. This is in the back of your hymn book as well, just as a reminder for us having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to forsake the paths of sin and to walk in the ways of holiness all the days of our lives, to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its spirituality and prosperity, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of its ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We also engage to maintain family and personal devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our acquaintances, to walk circumspectly or uprightly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, or as we're going out, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale, manufacture, or use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take an offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We further engage that when we remove from this place, we shall, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of the Word of God. All right? So, any questions? Any comments? What's that? 20-week series on, oh, on that. 
Yeah, you could easily just take one of those doctrines at a time and um, and work through them. Um, next week, Bill Wilson will be teaching while my family and I are in Iowa. And so I know you'll be encouraged and challenged by that. And then uh, the following week, we'll pick up our study on biblical counseling, finish that up in a few weeks, and then and then uh, move on to our next our next discussion, which is going to be spreading the gospel. All right, well, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our our uh, going from here. Lord, thank you for uh, the heritage of our church. I am constantly reminded of the the great foundation that we have and the men and women who have uh, fought for these truths, uh, maybe not in the physical way, but certainly many spiritual battles have taken place over the last 75 years. And we are grateful for um, for what we stand on. We're grateful for the longtime members that are still here holding to these truths and affirming them. We're great, grateful for the newer members who are uh, coming on board and, and affirming these truths as well, and we pray that you'd help us to make it as the center of who we are, uh, your word, and and our love for our Savior. Lord, help us to to uh, embody uh, the truth of your word and to live it out each day, and we pray that this next hour in which we reflect on your word, may we think carefully about how we ought to relate to you and respond rightly to it so that we will be both hearers and doers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.